following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. Uh, if you're visiting and I haven't met you, just so you know, my name is Ben. I'll be hanging out after the service, and I'd like to meet you. And so would other people here, pastors and congregants and whatever, hang out and have some coffee, and we'll get to know you. But welcome. That's the most important thing. We have been in the story that Luke has recorded for us about the beginning of the church, the book of Acts. Luke wrote two books for us. One is his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and then this story of Acts. So that's what we've been working through, thinking about it, oftentimes comparing our own lives to that of the first century church and saying, boy, how are we similar? What were they doing? What are we doing? That kind of thing. Today, we're going to not take a break from our story in Acts, but we kind of are today and the next couple of weeks. Paul has given us, or Luke, records a full sermon of the Apostle Paul. In all the Bible, we only have one complete sermon from this great apostle. We have excerpts and quotes and all that throughout the New Testament, but a full sermon that Paul preached uh, is, is recorded in Acts chapter 13. So that's where we'll be for the next couple of weeks. And I want to spend some time in this sermon. Um, for me, it, we're going to try to kind of can open or Paul's brain open and then get right into his brains so we can understand how he thinks. And I think when we do, it's illuminating like a spotlight. Uh, The sun comes up and illuminates all kinds of things. A spotlight really brings clarity to specific things. And today I want to look at two very specific things that this opening, or really it's the first half of Paul's sermon, bring to us. I think there's two two things that I want to hone in on today, but we'll be in this sermon for a couple weeks, so this is just part one. One thing I want to hone in on today is God's methodology, all right? That's like a $5 word for how He does stuff. You have a methodology for how you make pancakes. I made pancakes yesterday. There's a method to it. There's a way He does it, and we oftentimes think, well, boy, God works in mysterious ways. I think that's true. I will forever attest to that fact, but perhaps it's not as mysterious as we think when we truly wrap our heads around the Bible. Get into the Apostle Paul's mind, and you'll see in the opening here that he gives some really strong and encouraging cues as to how God works in this world, and that's helpful to shed some light on that. The second thing that I want to talk about is is the statement, I am a Christian, all right? There are a lot of very, very different kinds of people in your world and in this room and in the celebrity culture and in the government culture and in the international world, all the different places we hear people saying, I'm a Christian. And it causes us kind of to say, what does that actually mean? Because if all of the people who are saying I am a Christian are I don't even really know how to make sense of Christianity. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of people making that claim. So Paul starts to talk about this person, Jesus, and he is so intimately crucial to what it means to be a Christian. And unfortunately, sometimes we think about being a Christian in terms of things we say or wear or do or don't do and so forth. Those aren't divorced from Christianity, but we'll start to see today and then in the next week how those are not near the heart of Christianity. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Okay? So, those are the two things I want to hone in on today, and they're pretty connected. But let's go straight to the, to the text. Let's go right to Acts chapter 13, and then we will start. We opened it up last week. We will start in verse uh, 13. So, Acts 13 13, the most unlucky passage in Acts, but it has good alliteration to kick us off. From Paphos, Paul and his companion sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. 
That's good. Where John uh, left them to return to Jerusalem. We'll come back to this later. Uh, Some of you know the story about Paul and John Mark. They kind of butt heads and things don't go super well for them. This is why. This is John Mark, and John Mark is, is rolling out when I think Paul expected him to carry on. So we'll come back to this later. But John is abandoning the mission here, and Paul and the crew are headed, as we see in verse 14, from Perga. They went on to Pisidian Antioch. We've seen Antioch already in Acts, but we were down in Syria. Now we're up in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Paul, who is Saul of Tarsus, uh, Tarsus is just a couple hundred miles from here. So in some way, Paul is going back to his old stomping grounds. Verse 15, oh, sorry, uh, they go up to Pisidian Antioch. Now, on the Sabbath day, this is the second half of 14, on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and they sat down, just like we all just entered the church and sat down. And after the reading from the law, the Torah, and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you had a word of uh, uh, exhortation for the people, please speak. Okay, in the synagogue, you imagine the the rulers of the synagogue sort of sitting in a way. I imagine that when they sent word, they passed a note like you're not supposed to do in school, you know. They sent Paul a message. Paul comes to the town as a teacher, as a Pharisee. He probably has the garb, and he certainly has the reputation of being a biblical scholar. And when these guys would enter into town, the synagogue rulers often said, hey, why don't you do some guest speaking for us? Exhort the people. And it's not just teach us about growing grapes or history. It's help us move closer to God. So that's that language of exhortation or maybe challenge the people. Speak to us. So this is a pretty common thing they would do. And here we go. Verse 16. He stands up. Paul motions with his hand. Okay? He's he could just imagine, I would love to see Paul. I don't think he was a particularly dynamic speaker. He gets a lot of, he gets a lot of uh, complaints. But he was real impactful nonetheless. He, he stands up, imagines kind of a bow-legged, bald-headed guy. He can't see very well. He stands up. He says, fellow Israelites and ge- you Gentiles who worship God or God-fearers, listen to me. And now he tells history in fast forward. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. Then he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. And with mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. Or some of your, if you have ESV or a version like that, it says he bore with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Okay, that's good. About 55 words covers 450 years. He cut right to the chase. I like that. That's good. One thing I want you to do, if you have a pen or a pencil, this is a side note, but it's really important to me. Um, In that verse 18, where it says for 40 years he endured their conduct or he bore with them. There's a lot of scholarly debate around this verse and the way that scholars will look at the ancient texts and sort of determine how likely it is that this is original is they will look at how many manuscripts we have and they will look at how many different places around the ancient world we found those manuscripts. And they look at those, they say, if it was found in the most amount of places and we have the most manuscripts, then it's most likely that that was original. That's called textual criticism. This is one of the passages that people debate all day and night. And in Deuteronomy, we have the same language, but there, God has said not to have put up with the people for 40 years, but to have cared for them. Here, the Greek word can be put up with or cared for. And I suggest to you that because we have a precedent in Deuteronomy and because we have better um, evidence in the texts 
that form our Bible. I would advise you as your pastor to put in your margin, it is equally possible that this means he cared for them in the wilderness. I think it's crucial because it speaks to the character of God. Is God just putting up with us or is he caring for us? And the image of the Old Testament, one of the many, is God as a mother hen putting his wing over his people as a nurturing, caring provider and protector. I think that fits better with God cared for them in the wilderness. I'll leave it at that. If you want to talk about that with me anymore, I'd be happy to. But I think it's worth noting in your Bible, it's equally possible that that means cared for. Okay? All right. Now, here's what I want to say about this 450. This is the first part of what I want to focus on. This is the spotlight of Paul's head, helping us to understand the ways God works. Luke tells us this summary, which is really Paul telling us the summary of Israel's history. And he tells it to us in a way that skims quickly. You remember when Stephen gave his full sermon earlier in the book of Acts? Stephen camped on Joseph, uh, on, on Abraham, and then Joseph, and then Moses. Paul went right over it quickly, and he's going to camp on King Saul and King David. So why does he, he wants to say it though. Why does Paul give us this terse summary overview of these 450 years? I think that he's trying to give us God's methodology, an answer to the question of how does God work in this world? You ever feel confused when you think about God? I mean, I don't ever, but maybe you do. <laughs> I mean, come on. We're thinking about the infinite, ultimate creator being. <laughs> we're confused. I mean, we're, our, our knees kind of buckle when somebody says, describe God to me. You're like, oh my goodness, where do I start? When you think about why he does what he does, it's even more confusing. Maybe if you're like me, you wonder, why does he choose the time frames that he chooses? Ever feel like God is teaching you a lesson and you're kind of like, okay, I get it. I get it. How long do I have to suffer? <laughs> we wonder. It gets even more confusing when somebody tells you that God's only goal for you is to keep you from going to the bad place when you die and instead getting you into the good place. Okay, those two things are tough. God is super confusing to us. He's very hard to know. And then sometimes you hear, all he wants to do is make sure you don't go to the bad place and then you just want to go to the good place. He wants you to go there. Now you start to get really, really knotted up in your head. If that, if that is his only goal, then what is all of this? 100 A.D., 200 A.D., 300 A.D., World War I, World War II, World War Next. Why all this stuff? Why does he let so many centuries of disease and violence, rape and murder, pestilence and famine, why does he allow all this stuff to go on? If his only goal is to get us from the bad place to the good place, you know, we're told he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. And, and, and he loves you and he wants you to not go to the bad place. He wants you to go, to, what are we doing then in year 2018 of this thing? And the thousands that went before. Why so many centuries of destruction? You get what I'm, this is a question that has just gnawed at my brain forever. If God's only goal in this world is to A, become a human so that B, he can die for your sins, why doesn't that happen real short after Adam and Eve make a mistake? Why doesn't he just come in, shed his blood, save it, and now generation upon generation can just live in heaven where we're going anyway? Why does he let this happen? I would say none of us understands this fully. You read through the prophets, the great prophets, the minor prophets, you read through them and, and you will hear this sort of call, how long, O oh Lord? These are, 
These are people who were devoted in faith to God. They believed he was legit, and they cry out to him, how long do we have to suffer? It's another way of saying, why are you doing this, or why are you allowing this? If God sees us as his beloved people who are dying, and he wants to save us, why doesn't he just do it efficiently and quickly? He has the power, at least that's what we believe. That question, that question continues to this day to actually drive me closer to God. In my youth, it drove me from God because I quickly just assumed there's no answer, whatever. Now it, it's a mystery, and a real mystery draws you deeper and deeper and deeper into wondering and knowing God. When you honestly ask it, you can only have one reasonable conclusion, I think. Oh, this is me talking. But I think if we ask that question honestly, a reasonable conclusion is to save us from hell, to save us from eternal death is not as simple as we want to think. Nor is it God's only goal in the world. I think if it was simple like we think, just shed a little blood, we're good. And if that's all he wanted to do, then our whole Bible is a very different story, and it doesn't get much past Genesis chapter 3. We have like Genesis 3, human beings fall, Genesis 4, God fixes it, and then we just have lovely stories of everything for the whole, you know, the Bible's more interesting at that point, or maybe less interesting, depending on how you see it. You can't help but to wonder if this thing that we call salvation has a lot to do with an entire group of people being transformed by the renewing of our whole collective mind rather than a community that conforms to the patterns of this world. And it seems to take generation after generation, doesn't it? Isn't that what Paul is getting at? I mean, think about it. He's going to come to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, but he doesn't just go to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said one of the greatest mistakes that we make in the Christian church is taking people to the cross too quickly. And I hear that, and I'm like, what's wrong with you, Bonhoeffer? That's all we're supposed to do. Take them straight to the cross. He says the cross has no, there's no meaning in it if you don't know who the God is who's dying on that cross. And while it is God's Son dying on the cross, Trinitarian theology, which we hold to, also understands that it is God himself dying on that cross. That's a great mystery. It's not simply answered. It seems to take generation after generation. It's like God is saving not just you or Bill or Suzanne or me. It's like he's saving a massive community that spans thousands of years. It's like he's developing the whole community's knowledge of him. And it's so big and yet so particular that it simply could never be apprehended by one human being in any given part of time. Eons have passed since God first started engaging directly with humanity. And we are still fumbling in the dark. We're still grasping for him. Think about this this way. When I speak to you about the Bible or our church or faith, I am speaking my own words, yes? Yes. But I know things today that the Apostle Paul did not know. So do you. I know things today that Martin Luther and John Calvin and the great heroes of the faith never knew. I know things that C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham never knew, and so do you. And then everybody, everybody I just mentioned also knows a whole bunch of stuff that I'll never know. Regardless of where you end up on the timeline of history, the collective knowledge that you are working with is both better 
than what came before and worse than what came before in different ways. So this cannot therefore be a game of seeing who can amass the most knowledge. We often think that way because of how we're trained in our school. We're trained to think that the person who is the most knowledgeable has the most data, either memorized or quickly accessible. And we translate that into the church and we think that knowing God means knowing a bunch of stuff about Him. But it can't be that. Because there's just no way. You have what? 80, 90 years max. Some of you will get to 100. There's just no way to learn all of the stuff that has come. And we know more now. Paul never used words like Trinity. But we know to talk about God that way now. But then he knew stuff we'll never know because he spoke Koine Greek just like Jesus. This can't be simply about getting the most information. God seems to be pulling us into his way of life. He graces us with a limited amount of information in our day. And he expects us, he challenges us, he exhorts us to follow in faith and to follow in faith not our best practices or our best knowledge or our best books, but his son, Jesus, who is the righteous one. The one who is truly submitted to God or living with God, we might say the person who is a person after God's own heart then, is not the one who sins the least or who knows the most. It's the person who sees a truth and the limited information that God will give to you in your lifetime. And that person chooses to believe that truth and live according to it in faith. It is the humble and repentant person who never assumes that he or she has arrived. Because in faith, he or she can see the Bible and they can see the Bible as a story about God saving his people over many many hundreds and thousands of years. We stand with those who went before and we pass down the faith to those who come next. And all along, we never trust our own righteousness, but we all, every one of us, has learned that Jesus is the true righteous one that we follow after. Now, we've learned that about Jesus, but I think it's because of the way God went through history with his people for thousands of years before Jesus came. And that's what Paul just did in the opening of his sermon. He said, there were 450 years of this that went down before we got to the point where uh, David came. Now, that's an interesting thing that he does, and we're going to get there right now. Here's what I want you to see in the methodology. You say, well, God works in mysterious ways. Yes, he does. But he also works in some pretty well-established patterned ways as well. Remember, he chose people. He prepared the people. He led them through one stage after another. And then finally, he gave them a king after his own heart to believe and follow. That's what this first part of the sermon is about. Notice how rich it is in God's action toward his people. He chose them. He prepared them. He led them. He chose our ancestors. That was his action. He did that. He made a choice to choose the Hebrews. He allowed them to suffer deeply for 400 years in slavery under Pharaoh. That's that, how long, O oh Lord, do we have to endure this? He's preparing them. That's a stage. Then he graces them with a powerful salvation. Moses comes in, rescues them from slavery, which, by the way, was slavery they sold themselves into at the end of the story of Joseph. God rescues them out of it, graciously, powerfully doing what they could never do on their own. Now they're saved, and then he cares for them for 40 years in the wilderness where they were tested and tried. He led them after they were saved. He intentionally led them into the wilderness. This is how God works. Salvation isn't just, sweet, everything's great now. Salvation is the beginning, or the, the moment where you accept his grace is the beginning, and then he continues to shape and transform you. So he walks them through. It's amazing. You think about this. Here's another way to think about it. The Israelites are saved out of Egypt, and they're going where? To the promised land. God has promised to take them up there. 
We know that takes them 40 years to get there. Whoa, why does it take 40 years to get there? How long of a walk was it? It was about two weeks to go from where they were in slavery to the promised land. It's about a two-week walk. And it says right in Exodus 13, 17 and 18, then it came to pass when the Pharaoh had let all the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He says, I can't take them straight there. They'll freak out and go right back to Egypt. And you say, but God, I thought you were omnipotent. Can't you just make them not afraid? Why don't you just make them courageous? Why don't you just make them trust you? And God doesn't answer the why question. All we know is that he doesn't do that. He seems to prepare people by leading them through trials and a wilderness season. I mean, I don't want to draw this too far, but, but you see this pattern that Paul wants us to see. It's like God's only goal. This is how I learned it. God's goal is to make you obey him. God loves you if you're obedient, right? God lo- you're in great shape if you're obedient. Obey, obey, obey. That's all I ever learned growing up. I never at any point got the concept that God wants to make me into a person who wants to obey him. I think God can make us obey him pretty easily. It strikes me that it's particularly challenging to turn our hard hearts from where they are into people, into hearts that desire truly, that love the idea of obeying God. How many of us could raise our hands and say, all I ever want to do all day long is obey Jesus and everything he ever said? Uh huh. And yet some of us like to posture ourselves that way. Righteousness, submitting to God, there's something about it that has to do with recognizing I don't want to obey God, hardly ever. I don't want to. It's not natural for me. It's not my base desire. My base desire is to obey me. But God seems to be changing us as a people over many, many, many years. I think Paul is showing us his methodology. I think he's showing us how appointing King David, that's where we get next, was a huge moment in this salvation story because it meant that a whole community of people had been tempered and conditioned to be able to receive King David. I don't think you could have thrown King David back into the mix with early Israel. It just wouldn't have worked. It seems as though God is preparing them for that moment. Now they're ready to receive and even want to follow King David. He's the best king in the world in their whole history. He's the best. He's the first great king. He was the picture of repentance and justice and mercy that God wanted folks to see and to follow. But as we'll see next, even King David was just another step, another stage on the way to the greatest king of all, the Redeemer, the one whose infinite comfort proves all others' chains. So let's go to verse 20, and then we'll continue. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. So after those 450 years, then God gives them judges. And I think there's this sort of, this is a chapter that couldn't have happened earlier. This is how God works. Verse 21, then the people asked for a king, and they gave them Uh, And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the best tribe of all, the tribe of Benjamin, hmm, who ruled for 40 years. And after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Let's pause for a second. That verse 22 is a mashup of three major Old Testament passages about David. 
the audience, especially the Jewish audience, would hear those verses in there and they'd be like, yeah, David, mm, he's capturing it. Paul's on point. You know, Paul's not coming in and saying, what, you guys like David, you're dumb. He's not saying that. He's saying, you have every reason in the world to think King David was the bomb. He dude was awesome. But wait, he doesn't have to work hard to convince him, but what he says next would be difficult. Paul would have been the first to agree that David truly was a man after God's own hurt, but Paul would also understand that David was himself a corrupted man with deep and tragic failings. King David was a sexual abuser. We know that. He was also a first-degree murderer who wielded his power to oppress and destroy another. We know that. But that's, that's bad. <laughs> that's, a, that's weird that that's your hero. So what's going on here? God wanted them to see David as a hero. David then, in Paul's view, I think, is a classic example of what God hopes for in you and me and in all human beings, not that we become first-degree murdering sexual abusers. That's not what I mean at all. <laughs> you know that. No, I think he wants us to be repentant. Do we not share truly deep and tragic failings? We harm one another. We harm those we love. We're sitting in the same boat as David once was. What honest parent in this room today would say, I was a righteous and holy parent to my children. We all know plenty of parents who really, really want folks to think that. But honest parents come to me saying, I really tried hard, but I think I screwed up my kids in ways that I don't even know about yet. When they say that, I think they're following the pattern of the greatest human king in history of God's people. They're becoming men and women after God's own heart because they're expressing humility and repentance. They're saying, I gave it a good shot, but I know I failed and I need Jesus. They're not trying to prove their own righteousness. They're instead submitting to God's. You see? The point that Paul is making with David, as great as he was, was that he was the right man for the right time. The people had been prepared to receive and follow King David. He wants us to see how God was working with Israel through hundreds of years to get them ready to receive and follow David, someone who would rule over God's people with justice and with truth. And that's the story of David. Yes, he had failings, but David was a great great king of the people. We don't still have the star of David on Israel's flag for no reason. He was a true hero. He gives the pattern of the right kind of king, but because he's not the ultimate king, then David himself becomes another pointer to the greatest king, the ultimate one. He helps us hope for the true king. He helps the people develop a living hope, a perfectly righteous king who would be the great king's David, great, sorry, he would come and be the great king David's even greater son. Notice then how soon, right after Paul gets to King David, he jumps to Jesus. This is in verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior as he promised. From the descendants of this great king, so in the kingly line, in the royal line, Jesus comes from that, from King David. Verse 24, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. You remember John the baptizer? John was saying to all of Israel, hey, all of Israel, You've gone away from God, but you can repent, be baptized, and come back to God. That was the message of John the baptizer. So he's taking our minds there. He's saying, there was John, and he was doing a really great work in bringing people through baptism back to God, verse 25. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, i.e., there is an even greater one 
There is somebody even bigger coming. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham, and so all you Israelites, plus all of you non-Israelites who believe in God, to all of you guys, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read on every Sabbath. <laughs> I mean, that is a left hook straight to the top. Just whoopow. It is such a heavy hitter. Verse 27. Many American Christians need to hear verse 27. It is a warning to us, and it's a significant warning to us. These people were so prideful about their Bible knowledge and the ways of life that they had called righteous, that they saw the love and the forgiving grace of Jesus and they called it dangerous. So they rejected his goodness and love. They rejected his forgiveness. And when they did, they became enemies of God that they themselves spent a lot of time condemning. Notice what I said there. They spend a lot of time in their religious day-to-day -day life condemning those kinds of people who would reject the one true God, right? And literally by doing that, they were the ones who were rejecting salvation. It's the irony compounded. It's like a it's like 10 ironies all in one, one mashed up giant. It's the biggest irony of all. They read the Bible verses. They find all kinds of them that prove how sinful and rebellious everybody else is, and it never registers for them that the Bible has been trying to speak to them. So you can see Paul in front of all these Bible answer guys, and they're all like, hey, Jesus is the opposite of God. Jesus is what God hates because what was Jesus doing? He was forgiving people, showing grace to people, loving people, welcoming them to his table, and that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make those people pay. You're supposed to kill those people. You're supposed to defeat those people. You're supposed to protect yourself against those people, and, and Jesus didn't, and he loved them instead, and they said, no, that's dangerous. So every week, they read their Bibles, and like many of us, they love reading the prophets. When they do, they pull that move that we all pull from time to time. You know how it is. You ever sit, you're, you're listening to a great sermon or something, and you're just like, oh man, I know some idiot who really needs to hear this. You know? Or you're reading the Bible, and you're like, oh geez, I gotta put this, I gotta say, I'm gonna message this right to that fool who doesn't know this. They're making the same mistake. They're messed up because they have become opposed to God and they don't even know it. By failing to look at their own hearts and their own lives, they become opposite. They become challengers to God. They become those very people that they want to cringe at. So Paul continues for a few verses. He recounts the execution of Jesus. He talks about his resurrection the fact that a whole bunch of people walked and talked with Jesus afterward. These are the next couple verses. And he's saying, this Jesus was legitimately the Messiah. And you know that because he did something nobody else has ever done in relationship to death. He beat it. And a bunch of people saw him. This is the good news for us. The Messiah we've been waiting for has come. Let's not reject it, Paul is saying. And then we get to verse 32. We tell you the euangelion. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors. A, and what was the promise? What did God promise the ancestors? A great, ruling, redeeming king. A saving ruler. He promised us that, verse 33. He has fulfilled for us, us, their children. Now notice, he's saying us to a room of Gentiles and Jews, and he's saying we are our ancestors' children. You and I, in that sense, are grafted in, he'll say in another text, to the people of God. 
you and I who are not born in the lineage of Abraham, okay? So he's saying all of us are their children. By raising up Jesus, he has fulfilled to us his promise of a great king. If Jesus hadn't been raised up, we're just talking about another prophet in the line of prophets. But Jesus was raised up. He fulfilled it. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. He's hearkening back to a psalm that had people hoping for a Messiah. God raised him from the dead, verse 34, so that he will never be subject to decay. Um, Your Bible might say, so he might not see corruption, and you're like, well, he saw death. Death is pretty corrupting. (laughs) That's decay. Yes, he saw death, but he didn't decay. He didn't stay in the grave is the idea. He raised him from the dead. The Messiah is not supposed to see decay. He never did. And then I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. David experienced decay, Paul will say, but not the Messiah. Therefore, Jesus is the ultimate great king and redeemer. I'm going to wrap it up now. I want you to understand that Paul's message was a Jewish message to a non-Jewish world. He truly believed that Israel's God was the God of the entire universe. Okay, so when he's coming into the synagogue and saying that, he's got a lot of people nodding already. Yes, he is the one true God. And Israel's Messiah is the true king of this world that we live in. God is the ruler of all the cosmos. This Messiah, Jesus, is the king of this world that we live in and beyond. He's the true king. I think this is still true of us today. We, like those men and women from those first century synagogues who were Gentiles, but they were also God-fearers, it's like you and me. We love the God of Israel, but we're not Israel genetically. I think I'm German and French and probably something else. But once those God-fearing Gentiles, if you will, learned the gospel that Paul was preaching, they too joined the mission of sharing this message to a non-Jewish world, their own world, or maybe their own worlds as they went out. Here's why I think this is so important. To the degree that you and I think or we tell other people that Christianity is its own religion and that it's disconnected from the history of Israel, we hollow Jesus out to little more than a blood donor. Yes? Dallas Willard had a wonderful little quip he would say. He would say, too many Christians are like vampires. They go to Jesus just for a little blood. When that remains the focus of our attention, we don't see any reason to join God, to join his community as participants. And therefore, we just opt to sort of sit on the side and judge. It's really kind of your two options. And then we never actually know God. Worse, we actually fail to submit our lives to God. Like those people who rejected Jesus the ones Paul is warning against becoming, they go to their graves expecting that God is going to hail them as the righteous ones when they meet God. They go to their graves in pride, thinking, boy, oh, boy, did I live this life a lot better than all those other people. And then when they meet Jesus, Jesus just says, and Jesus talks about this, he says, I never actually knew you. Who are you again? How close then are we to Jesus, really? Or do we just want to be close to his blood? How close are we to the way Jesus thinks toward others? And if we say, boy, I've got a ways to go, then you say, Jesus is helping you do that. Jesus is the only righteous one. If you consider Paul's own story, you, can, you see all these other texts we have in the New Testament He believes that the right response to God's righteousness would be somebody who says, I submit to that righteousness. I see that such righteousness is only attainable by Jesus himself. 
the Jesus who lived in Nazareth. A wrong response would be someone who says, I submit to that righteousness, which means that I can and will be righteous, just like Jesus was able to be. I will establish my own righteousness. In Romans, Paul says this in chapter 10, verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see? You say, but Ben, if I believe in God, he wants me to be righteous, so I need to live and try to be righteous. And to that I say, yay and amen. It's to the degree that you think you can be more righteous than your brother or sister. It's to the degree that you think you're better than that we are failing to submit to God's righteousness. And it's to, on the contrary, the degree that you say, I am unrighteous and only Jesus is, therefore I am like my wife Allie and my neighbor and all the people around me. I'm in the same boat. I'm submitted then. I'm desperate for Jesus' righteousness because I can't make myself that way, nor can anybody else. Now you're submitting. Now you're in humility. Right after that, verse 3 in chapter 10 of Romans, he says that Christ is the one person that the law was always trying to create throughout all those years. Throughout all these years of God methodologically trying to weave into our hearts and mind an appreciation for justice and truth, Jesus was the one that that law was always conditioning us to understand. That's why Jesus says, if you had listened to the law and understood it, you would not be confused about me. It was all trying to make you able to receive who I am. That's where we come to the table and say, thank you. Believing this doesn't make you better than any other people, but it does mean that you're humbly willing to receive that grace that God is offering you. And that grace is Jesus himself. It means that you're willing to live in justice and in truth, humbly recognizing your broken state, humbly recognizing and confessing your own evil, your own ignorance, and your own desperate need for his life. And when that happens, you're repenting like King David. Notice, you might not know hardly anything Notice, you might be really, really sinful still today, but there's this sense of when you turn that and you say, God, I need you, and I'm changing, and I need your help. I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I'm not the person that I was meant to be. Would you help me? Now you stand in the shoes of the great King David, and you become a man or a woman after God's own heart. The implication is that all of these events of Israel's history are examples of God's will coming to pass. They're examples of his own righteousness. And if you want to live wisely in this world, especially if you want to be loyal to God, then you accept how God has willed it. You accept how he does it. God willed that his Messiah his powerful, ruling, righteous one would love and forgive the most sinful of all sinful people. That he would love them and accept them and affirm them as infinitely worth loving. That's what God's will was for Jesus. But to the know-it-alls and the prideful ones, folks who figured they knew all about what God should do and how God should behave, then Jesus was nothing more to them than a threat to their way of life. And that was how the Apostle Paul had been living before he learned the gospel. Remember? Christians, the church, Jesus, they were all what? A threat to the righteous way of life. And what did Paul seek to do? Destroy them to preserve the righteous way of life. And Jesus met him and boldly said, Paul, you are not understanding. I am the righteous way of life. Lead people to me, not to your preferences or your cultural ways of living. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful, and amazing shift, and it allows all of us to be with God. Are you submitted to God this morning? Or are you wanting God and others to submit to you? Are we as a community submitted to God this morning? Or do we want God and others to submit to our will? Are you wishing that he was working differently in our church? Or do you see that he's working powerfully in our church? Are you wishing that he was working differently in the world? Or by believing in the gospel of Jesus, have you been able to see that he is working in the world every single second? Do you sit watching the internet screens and the television news and say, boy, where's God? I can't believe this is happening. Or do you look at all of it and you say, I know from hundreds of years of history through the Bible that God is with us as presently as he always has been, and you're paying attention to where he's working. Do you know it? Or does God? Do you want him to submit to you or will you submit to him? It's an amazing difference. In Paul's mind, submission is nothing less than believing and accepting and living by the gospel of Jesus and being baptized into him. That's where we'll leave it for today. I think I could go for another two. I'm kind of pumped right now. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Now, next, now you're all saying, okay, Ben, I want to live according to, I hope you're all saying, I want to live according to Jesus. I want to live by the gospel. And then if you're smart, you say, well, what does that actually look like? And that's where we'll go next week. And we'd go, we have to go no further than to look at Paul's own life. And we'll go to some other passages next week too. For now, pray with me. Thank you for being here and listening. And, and we'll, we'll pick up Paul's great illuminating sermon again next Sunday. Father, thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for illuminating this world. Thank you for being the light that shines upon all darkness. We do trust you, but it's not easy to do that. We think we're really smart, and we have degrees and books to prove it, but man, we need you. I pray that you would help us to be a people who are characterized as humble, that East Portland and beyond would say, those central Bible folks are a humble people. I pray that you would help us through your spirit to become a loving people, a people of grace and a people of truth. Help us to be all of those things and more as we live with you, Jesus, our great King. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.